Let's look to Psalm 51. We've covered this psalm a few times in the last 12 years, but it does us well to be reminded of what it teaches. Psalm 51 is David's great prayer of repentance. Its writing records an event that happened roughly a year after the events of 2 Samuel 11. David committing that great multi-layered sin with Bathsheba. David, if he doesn't do anything else for me, he reminds me that there is no sin of which I'm not capable. Pastor Brothers used to teach us that we fall in the direction of our strengths. Those areas that we think we're strongest in, we're in trouble. You wouldn't find... It's a good example. I don't mean to rail on him because I know but for God's grace I could be there too. But you wouldn't find a man preach harder against immorality than Jimmy Swagger. And what happened? You know. And so David, the man after God's own heart, committed this multi-layered sin, adultery, murder, covetousness, um, really idolatry, all in one swipe. And he went roughly a year without making it right. The sweet psalmist of Israel went a year out of God's favor and out of his fellowship. Can you imagine what it must have been like for those in the court of King David to spend a year, he who was the absolute epitome of joy in serving God for a year is sullen and a pall hangs over him and it's just in a bad way. Of course, Bathsheba was with child from that unholy act and by now, by Psalm 51, the baby is about three months old. And the prophet Nathan comes to David and tells him the story, a parable, about the man and his little ewe lamb. David, rightfully so, is incensed. Demands that man die, but pay fourfold before he does. And then, of course, Nathan points his finger at David and says, Thou art the man. And everything in David's self-righteousness comes crashing down on him at that moment. By the way, kudos to Nathan for being willing to deliver a message to a man of great power who could have had him killed. He had already demonstrated he was willing to kill people that could expose him. But what we're going to see in David is as great a sinner he was, and he was, he was a greater repenter. And I just cannot rest myself away 
from the thoughts of repentance. That doesn't mean that as I come to this lectern here that I come thinking that all of you in here are just a bunch of sinners and need to get right with God. I don't have any kind of preconceived notion in my head. I know this. Over the last two weeks, God has been wearing me out over things in my own life, things I've let slip, things I've come up short on, sins of omission and commission. the chief musician, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet came unto him after he had gone into Bathsheba. By the way, you know many of you know this already. I read this psalm every day. Every day. I can't get to where I won't sin, but I don't want to stop being able to repent of it. This is David's prayer when he comes to understand the the seriousness and the depths of his depravity. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindness, according to the multitude of thy tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from mine iniquity, And cleanse me from my sin. That's an interesting verse. We talked about this thought in Bible class. We we love the King James here. I'm not mean-spirited about it. I think that there are people out there that love the Lord and serve the Lord that, that prefer other versions. I'm not going to war with them over it. I'm just where I am on it, you know. And I do concede that English has changed a great deal in the last 400 and 12 years or so. And sometimes we do need to take a little extra effort to see what a word means that's changed. But I talked to one of my professors in college about this word throughly. There's no difference in the word throughly in Greek or Hebrew, either one, and thoroughly. They're the same word. But it's apparent that the translators had an idea doctrinally when they translated, when they used throughly instead of thoroughly, because apparently in 1611, throughly meant from the inside out, and thoroughly meant from the outside in. So while there's no difference in the original languages, there is a difference in English that I think is interesting that the translators felt the need to make that distinction. We know it's true. When God works on us, what does he do, from the inside out or the outside in? Something that fundamentalists would do well to understand, God doesn't work on the outside in. He works on the inside out. It blows my mind somebody first gets saved and we expect them to have the same maturity as somebody who's been saved 40 years. That's ridiculous. God's working on the inside and it'll find its way out. What's my favorite saying? What's down in the well comes up in the bucket. God's dealing with the well first. Wash me thoroughly from mine iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against thee, thee only have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight, that thou mightest be justified when thou speakest and be clear when thou judgest. 
Behold, I was shapen in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. He doesn't mean that, that his conception was a sinful act. He means when I was conceived, I had my sin nature from the beginning. Behold, thou desirest truth in the inward part, parts, and in the hidden part thou shalt make me to know wisdom. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. You remember that word purge from Sunday? <laughs> Wash it away. It's interesting to me. David is speaking of a New Testament concept. David had some insight because in the Old Testament, the sacrifices, the blood of the sacrifices was meant to cover sin. It wasn't until the New Testament that they started understanding the idea of washing it away. And what does David say? He said, purge it. Don't just cover it, Lord. Purge it. Wash it out. (laughs) Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness that the bones which thou hast broken may rejoice. Hide thy face from my sins and blot out all mine iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from thy presence and, from my presence, and take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation and uphold me with thy free spirit. Then will I teach transgressors thy ways. Then... And I'm sorry, and sinners shall be converted unto thee. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, thou God of my salvation, and my tongue shall sing aloud of thy righteousness. O Lord, open thou my lips, and my mouth shall show forth thy praise. Here's another New Testament truth that David understood. For thou desirest not sacrifice, else would I give it. Thou delightest not in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and a contrite heart, O God, thou wilt not despise. Do good in thy good pleasure unto Zion. Build thou the walls of Jerusalem. Then shalt thou be pleased with the sacrifices of righteousness, with burnt offering and whole burnt offering. Then shall they offer bullocks upon thine altar. When David sinned, he knew how to fix the problem. And he knew that the problem was him. If you read through Psalm 51, there's 34 personal pronouns. It's not him, it's not her, it's not that one, it's not that one. It's me. It's me, it's me, it's me, me, O Lord, standing in the need of prayer. Repentance. And we hear the word repentance, and we tend to think of, you know, these grave, earth-moving kind of sins. No, repentance is a mindset that ought to be ever in us any time we offend God, even in the slightest. The The fact is, for most of us, it's not about repenting of some grave, deep immorality or something that breaks the law or something like that. For most of us, it's being repentant about a bad attitude or about putting something ahead of God, or something like that. But if we can develop a mindset of repentance that just is is always flowing there whenever we need it, man, we'll be the better for it, and it will usher in revival. So with that, with the Lord's help, we're going to speak on the four facets of repentance. You've heard this title before. I'll try to bring it in a way that's different and fresh for you, but the Lord most clearly drew me to this thought tonight.
the four facets of repentance. Father, would you please help me to preach and teach this in the way that you most want me to tonight? Would you help me to just stay out of your way? Lord, as we have seen you moving on hearts and working in people's lives, my greatest fear about it is that I will do something to stunt this thing, and I don't want to, Lord. I just want you to keep working on me, and I want you to keep doing what you're doing here, and I just want to, I want to stay out of the way of what you're doing, but right dead in the path of what you want to do. And so, Lord, would you help us tonight to that end? Father, would you give us a sweet, sweet time of prayer? And speak to our hearts, we pray. And may Jesus be lifted up in all of it. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. The four facets of repentance. Facet number one is conviction. Now that seems pretty obvious. But the thing is, if Christians don't heed conviction... Each time, the voice of the Holy Spirit gets softer and softer and softer, and we find ourselves living a life that's pretty much devoid of conviction. It doesn't mean that God is any more okay with what we're doing. It just means we have quenched His Holy Spirit. But it begins with conviction. Another word we could use there is arrest. A psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet came unto him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Thank God for Nathan. Proverbs 27.6 is an interesting verse in this, in this regard. Let me read it to you. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. If you've got a friend that loves you enough to tell you when you're not doing right, thank God for that. David may not have felt like it in the moment, but Nathan was his friend. Hey, by the way, let's give David an attaboy too. The, the baby, of course, that was the result of this died. That was part of his chastening. But they ended up having another baby. It was a boy, Solomon. But down the line, they had another baby. You know what they named that boy? Nathan. That's important when you look into the genealogy of Christ, by the way. But anyway, what, what, do, we, what do we mean by, correct, by conviction? It's when God's Spirit tells you to change. That's conviction. When God's Spirit speaks to you and says, this needs to change. And may I remind you that more often than not, it's not going to come like an earthquake or a whirlwind or a fire. It's going to come like a still, small voice. The problem is, sometimes we let ourselves get so loud we don't hear him. But if you're listening for him, you'll hear him. Conviction, Andy. This needs to change. If somebody's not saved and they come under conviction, what are they coming to grips with? What I'm doing isn't working. This needs to change. What is God saying to David through Nathan? What you've done is wrong and this needs to change. Problem is... We get like trees planted by the water, don't we? I shall not be moved. 
But the fact is, as Christians, we must be willing to pivot, to turn on a dime when God says to. Conviction. You may find it in your Bible reading. You may find it in a sermon or a Sunday school lesson. You may hear it in a song. God can use about anything to bring about conviction. So, conviction, this arrest, but then that finds its way to confession. Verse 1, have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindness, according to the multitude of thy tender mercies, blot out my transgression, wash me thoroughly from mine iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin, for I acknowledge my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against thee, thee only, have I sinned, and done this evil in thy sight, that thou mightest be justified when thou speakest, and be clear when thou judgest. Behold, I was shapen in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, thou desirest truth in the inward parts, and in the hidden part thou shalt make me to know wisdom. If conviction is a matter of arrest, confession is a matter of agreement. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The word confession literally means to agree with God. It's not, oh, you caught me, Lord. Yep, I'm guilty. No, it is when you come to the understanding that I am exactly what your word says I am. I have done exactly what your word says I've done. I need to do exactly what your word says I should do. Lord, I agree with you in this matter. That is confession. But so often, and you see it in people like Saul, they would show remorse, but they didn't change. That wasn't true confession. Confession is when I see myself the way God sees me. Make it personal. Again, this is a very personal psalm. David uses personal pronouns over and over and over, not because he's on some kind of ego trip, but because he realizes that this is my problem. It's not Bathsheba's fault. It's not Nathan's fault for not telling me what to do. It's not uh, any of the other wives that I have, although he shouldn't have had any other wives. He should have had one. Amen. It's my problem. I'm the one that did it. And, and listen, that's a tough thing to get into. When, when I get alone with God, and I, all this time I've made, I've made excuses. Well, Lord, if you'd give me this, I could get this done. And if you'd do this over here, then I could get this done. And, and Lord, I've been going through this over here, and finally the Holy Spirit burns me down to my essence, and I say, it's me. It's my problem, Lord. I'm the problem. It's interesting. He says, have mercy upon me. The word mercy means to stoop in kindness to an inferior. Lord, I'm inferior to you. Would you stoop down to my level and help me? There can be no pride in confession. No pride. He talks about a transgression. That's a moral rebellion. It's willful. He talks about an iniquity. That's perverse. He talks about sin. That's a general term for missing the mark. And in verse 4, he makes it very clear that ultimately all sin wrongs God. Now, that's not saying that it doesn't affect other people. It affected Bathsheba, Uriah, their baby. 
Ahithophel, Joab, all the soldiers, Nathan, his household, everybody that was working in the camp, everybody was affected by David's sin. But at its, at its root, it was a sin against God. Think about Joseph. Potiphar's wife comes and puts the moves on Joseph. And what if Joseph said, I can't do this thing and send this sin against God? It's not about Potiphar. It's not about you. It's not even about me. I can't offend God. Here's the problem. I can get more worked up over the potential to offend my wife or to offend my kids or to offend my church. And listen, God forbid, if I fell into immorality and had to leave this church, I would offend my wife and I would offend my kids and I would offend this church and it would cause a great deal of pain. But fundamentally, the worst problem of it all is that I have offended my holy God. Because there's going to be times that sin presents itself as being victimless. It won't hurt anybody. That's never true, but even if it were, it still hurts God. We have got to see sin for what it is. Oh, conviction. It hurts, and confession, it's tough. But I'm thankful for the third facet cleansing hmm. cleansing if conviction's a matter of arrest and confession's a matter of agreement then cleansing's a matter of absolution verse 7 purge me with hyssop and i shall be clean wash me and i shall be whiter than snow Make me to hear joy and gladness that the bones which thou hast broken may rejoice. Hide thy face from my sins and blot out all mine iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from thy presence and take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation and uphold me with thy free spirit. It begins with appropriation. Purge me. Purge me. And then he goes to domination, make me. Have you ever had to ask God to make you do something? Lord, I know this is right, and I don't want to do it. I need you to make me do right. Appropriation, purge. Domination, make me. Transformation, create in me a clean heart. And then restoration, restore unto me the joy of thy salvation. On those occasions in which we have to enact discipline in our home. No child likes suffering consequences for their bad actions, whatever those consequences are. Which, in my day, was usually a whooping. My parents didn't believe in spankings. They believed in whoopings. And they were fervent in their belief. But it seems in today's society, the worst whooping you can give a kid is take their phone away. It about kills them. Oh, no, not my phone. Whatever it is, the most precious thing to us is when the correction has been levied 
we pray, and then we say four words, done and over with. We don't bring it up again. It's gone. Isn't it a wonderful thing? When you bow before your holy God and you ask for his forgiveness and God cleanses it, it's done and over with. And he never brings it up again. (laughs) By the way, if God doesn't bring it up, you quit bringing it up. You know that song we sing every once in a while? What sins are you talking about? I can't remember them anymore. Cleansing. Real repentance begins with conviction. It's a matter of arrest. Confession, it's a matter of agreement. Cleansing, it's a matter of absolution. And then finally, consecration. That's a matter of action. That's the, okay, I've gotten it right with God, now what? Verse 13. Verse 12, he says, Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation, and pull me with thy free spirit. Then will I teach transgressors thy ways, and sinners shall be converted unto thee. Lord, you've done this work in my heart. Now I can help somebody else that needs that work done in their heart. See? Then will I teach transgressors thy ways, and sinners shall be converted unto thee. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, thou God of my salvation, and my tongue shall sing aloud of thy righteousness. O Lord, open thou my lips, and my mouth shall show forth thy praise. For thou desirest not sacrifice, else would I give it. Thou delightest not in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, thou wilt not despise. Do good in thy good pleasure unto Zion. Build thou the walls of Jerusalem. Then shalt thou be pleased with the sacrifices of righteousness, with burnt offering and whole burnt offering. Then shall they offer bullocks upon thine altar. Lord, if you'll consecrate me, if you'll set me apart for your service now that I'm cleansed, according to verse 13, I'll teach your gospel. I'll teach your gospel. According to verse 14, I'll testify of your goodness. According to verse 15, I will trumpet your greatness. According to verses 16 and 17, I'll be tearful in my grief. And in verses 18 and 19, I'll be tuned into your grace. That's what happens when we're consecrated. When you get saved, positionally you're righteous. There's there's therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. Aren't you glad for that? We're not talking about positionally, we're talking about practically. Yes, I am positionally righteous from the moment I'm saved, but practically speaking, I fail God all the time, and that's where 1 John comes in. I need a way to get cleansed. I need a way to restore that fellowship. I need a way to be usable by God. So what is that way? My little children, these things right unto you, that you sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, 
Jesus Christ, the righteous. How, how can he do that? And he is the propitiation, literally the mercy seat of our sins. And not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. Why does Psalm 51 work for me? Because when God looks at me, all he sees is Jesus. It's been rightly said in a song that God can't see me for what I am, 